Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookend brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is Rosecrans Baldwin. He is the author of You Lost Me There and Paris. I love you, but you're bringing me down. His new book is Everything Now, Lessons from the City-State of Los Angeles, which is published by our friends at FSG. Rosecrans, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Yes, it's an honor to have you here. And Rosecrans, before we talk about your book, you and I met through the Morning News Tournament of Books. Can you tell us about the Morning News Tournament of Books and your affiliation with both the Morning News and the TOB? Sure. So the Morning News is a online zine or magazine that I started with a friend a while ago. I mean, I hate to date myself, but back in 1999, when blogs were just becoming a thing. In any case, uh, a couple years into it, we had this strange idea, myself, Andrew Womack, a guy named Kevin Gilfoll, to do um, a book prize, but in a way that would take the pretentiousness out of book prizes, while at the same time doing what we love about prizes, which is celebrating books, celebrating reading and helping people find really excellent titles in fiction that they may not have heard about. And so Kevin really had this idea that we would take some of the best fiction that was published in the past calendar year and put it into a March Madness style seating. You know, you're at Quail Ridge. I used to live in Chapel Hill. You know, college basketball is part of sort of the national understanding of things. And we never wanted to suggest that literature and sports are the same thing or that you could take two books and sort of pit them against each other. But we had this idea that if you as a reader, um, let's say you read one book and you just love it and you read another book and it just doesn't work for you to have to think about those two books at the same time and figure out why one book really did something for you and the other perhaps just didn't click. It says something about how you evaluate art and how you come to develop as a personal reader. And so what we do is each March, we gather about 16 people from various parts of the publishing and media world, authors, critics, people who work in bookstores, and we bring them together and each weekday, they take two books that they've read and in public discuss why one book worked for them and one didn't, and then advance that book in the quote unquote competition until by the end of the month, uh, we have one book that remains uh, and it's the supreme winner and we award it. Um, our award is called The Rooster. It's named after David Sedaris's brother, who is a local flooring expert in the triangle. Uh, and that was just for no reason other than the fact that we loved Sedaris's story about his brother back in the day. In any case, we then turn to the author of the book, that's one, and we try to present them with a live rooster. Uh, no single author in 17 years has accepted one. So in case, instead we uh, make a donation to charity. But yeah, so that's the tournament of books. And it is a very strange, fun way to spend a March, uh, the month of March, if you are someone who loves reading. Yeah, thank you, Rose Krantz. And I'm sure the author's neighbors are thankful that they are not accepting the live roosters. Um, <laughs> but uh, here, as you mentioned, you know, college basketball is very important. So it's been really fun for us at Quill Ridge Books to uh, promote the tournament of books um, for the past several years. Thank you so much for that. And you mentioned you used to live in Chapel Hill. How did you end up in Los Angeles? You know, my wife is originally from Chapel Hill. 
And so we were living uh, in Chatham County. And at the time she also is a writer and we had always been each other's editors, but we, but we had never worked on a project collaboratively. And then we came up with an idea for a TV show, uh, which we were lucky enough to have get some attention in Hollywood. And suddenly we were meeting sort of showrunners, the people that put TV shows together, and we had basically sold it to a studio. And it all seemed like this huge Hollywood dream was going to come real. And then it all fell apart. But Rachel and I sort of realized that we really enjoyed working together as writers. Um, there is a tradition in Hollywood of husband and wife writing teams, you know, developing scripts and movies and shows. And we were due for a change. Uh, we had been in Chapel Hill at that point for about four or five years. Um, Rachel had been working in a nonprofit. I had been doing some teaching at both Duke and at Carolina. Uh, and so we sold our little house in the woods and picked up and headed off to the West Coast. Nice. Thank you so much, Rosecrans. Now, let's dive into your excellent new book about Los Angeles, everything now. Uh, my first question for you is, if I made a movie called Revenge City, would you watch it? <laughs> um, well, for the listeners, what Jason's referring to is one of the strangest moments I had, which literally happened about, I think, three or four weeks after we had moved to Los Angeles. I was in a parking lot. It was about 6.30 in the morning. I was actually going to meet someone to play tennis. Um, and I'm standing in the parking lot and this big guy rides up to me on a BMX bike. And he had to be in his 30s, white guy, the size of a college linebacker. But he also, he was not looking great. Um, he might've had some addiction problems. He was certainly quite a sort of dirty guy, maybe been sleeping outside for a while. In any case, he just came right up to me on his bike and he came to a stop and the bike was the size of a bicycle for a child. And he is probably 210 pounds. And he says to me, exactly what you just said in this low, very aggressive tone, you know, if I made a movie, and I called it revenge city. Would you watch it? I was thinking that I was about to get mugged. I didn't say anything. He's like, he repeated the question. And uh, at that point, I just decided he needed an honest answer. And so I told him, yeah, I mean, that's a pretty good title. I'd see that. And he said, that's what I thought. And then he just pedaled away. Yeah. And it was the start of this feeling that I've had ever since we moved here um, is that anything can happen in here at any second, uh, which can personally give me a feeling of both extreme hope here because things can turn around so fast and also a sense of doom frankly because i think anyone you don't have to have ever lived in los angeles to know very well that this city is constantly facing disaster whether it is from fires or storms or earthquake or this homelessness epidemic we have or just problem after problem after problem. LA is a very exciting and troubling place to live. Right. Thank you, Rose Krantz. And you state that it is a misunderstanding that Los Angeles is just another big city in the United States when actually it is something else. Can you unpack this thesis for us a bit, please, sir? Yeah, sure. It came from a feeling that I began to have early in living here. I grew up, my dad was a furniture salesman and we started in Chicago and then Nashville and then eventually the East Coast when he got a job in New York City. And 
after that, I lived in various places, went away for college. Rachel and I, for a time, lived in France. I've always been someone moving around. But for no good reason, we came to Los Angeles, and I suddenly felt like I was home. I don't know. I didn't know why that was. It didn't make sense to me. I didn't have much family or connections here. Then on top of that, LA is a very strange place to visit. Have you been here before, Jason, as a visitor? I have. I used to live in San Francisco for a long time and actually um, went through Los Angeles a few times as I was driving back and forth to Arizona when I was about to move there for a year and then also uh, for work conferences and such. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you felt this, but I found it pretty bewildering at first. You know, mm. I actually think it's kind of a hard town to visit as a tourist. But once you live here, you begin to see how L.A. is not just a city, but it's really 88 cities that are scattered across thousands of square miles. On top of that, the sense of southern Los Angeles, which is what people here really mean when they say L.A., because Los Angeles is itself a city, but so is Beverly Hills, its own city. So is Compton, its own city. Um, but when people say L.A., it's about this much bigger region that begins to feel almost more like a climate than a city. It begins to feel more like a, um, I don't know, sort of this island on the land, which is how this historian, Carrie McWilliams, once said about it. In any case, as I was driving around, I was like, this place is confounding, but also really fascinating because there's a sense that as you drive around, LA almost doesn't stop. It's like you have to drive 100 miles in any direction from Dodger Stadium to basically leave L.A., even though there's all these communities that aren't L.A. itself but are part of it. So the point is, I was here, I'm reading all these books about Los Angeles history, just trying to get a grasp of how to sort of understand the place. And it began to work for me that maybe it wasn't a big city after all, that it's not New York, Boston, Miami, Seattle, but something else. And so... What I started to think of was this idea of a city-state. So really quickly, city-states have been around forever. Basically, back to the dawn of civilization, we had city-states way earlier than we had nations. The idea of carving the globe up into separate countries is like only about three or 400 years old. Whereas for a long time, going back to Athens and Sparta, um, a variety of city-states in Southeast Asia, this idea of a metropolis and sort of the surrounding territory that it has a kind of sovereignty about, but also just a population of, that share certain customs and feeling and trade and languages. That's how humans were organized. And going around LA and for all of its weirdness and like bizarre scale, but also the huge diversity of people that live here, it just started to make more sense. And so what I wanted to do was see if I could take the time to read all the books I could find but then also just talk to tons of people. In the end, it was about dozens of interviews and also shadow a couple people for weeks or months at a time to just to get a sense of if this idea holds water, if Los Angeles isn't just another big metropolis, but something else, then what is it? Uh, and so, yeah, that's what I spent a couple of years doing. And um, it was uh, fascinating. I mean, it was really like one of the most fun books that I've ever worked on. Excellent. And I can tell as I'm reading it. Uh, thank you, Rose Krantz. As I was reading this book, I found that the formatting reminded me a bit of Walter Benjamin's The Arcades Project, um, books along those lines. Can you tell us a bit about the formatting, both in terms of breaking the book into lessons and then how those lessons are subdivided? Absolutely. 
Um, and I think that's a great comparison. Um, I didn't have many other books in mind for what I wanted to do. Um, one that stands out is a wonderful book about um, Mumbai called Maximum City. Uh, another terrific book, uh, Orhan Pamuk, the Turkish novelist, Nobel Prize winner. He wrote a book called Istanbul um, that is just a stunner. What I wanted to do was weave together the reporting that I did, the research about Los Angeles history and Los Angeles culture, and also voices from so many writers that have been a part of Los Angeles, whether it's Octavia Butler or Joan Didion or uh, Mike Davis, and just sort of weave them in to create a bit of a tapestry. And the idea of doing it by chapters where each chapter is a lesson, um, it came from two things. One, I really want this book to show that I was sort of hearing all these other people's experiences. You know, I don't have a lot of credibility in Southern California. I'm not from LA. I haven't lived here that long. There is a great tradition of people from the East coast, mostly dudes showing up and telling people in California, this is what it's like to live here. And people here are sort of turning up their noses, understandably. I actually think people in the South might uh, appreciate that too. There's you know, certainly a tradition of New Yorkers coming down in it, whether it's North Carolina, South Carolina, showing up and suddenly having their take on the place. And this is how we should understand it. In any case, um, I, just to nerd out for a second, the real structure idea came from a pretty obscure source. And for any of the listeners who have a philosophy background or you know read some philosophy in college, which is really the extent that I have, um, uh, Wittgenstein, this British philosopher, once wrote a book called The Tractatus. And I hope I'm pronouncing that right. And the idea, it's a really short book, it's tiny. The idea is he wanted to try to map out the connections between language and reality. In other words, how do we talk about the world around us and what can we say that's actually true? And he did it in just a series of statements. It's like a book of, I think, if I'm remembering this correctly, it's a book of about seven chapters long. And each one starts off with just a single declaration. And it could, I'm gonna make this up, but it could be, you know, uh, the chair is brown. And then the rest of the chapter, and that, that chapter would be that chair is brown statement would be marked 1.0. And then there's a paragraph break and then 1.1. And that 1.1 would be something like, if the chair is brown, then brown is the color of all chairs. In other words, he's trying to make another statement that sort of is based on the first statement. Um, and I'm now realizing that all <laughs> chairs are not brown. So, okay, I'm obviously not a philosopher, but <laughs> the idea was if I could find things that people, either in history or from stories I was hearing from people as I spent time with them that were sort of true or at least suggestive about what life is really like in Los Angeles, I could begin to assemble a chapter, so not so much of fragments, but of different voices sort of adding meaning as you go thing by thing by thing. So as you probably saw in the book, you know, the first chapter will open with sort of this numeral and then a statement or an anecdote or a piece of research and then move on to another numeral. And over time, what I'm hoping people experience, the idea that that sense of meaning and these stories and these voices begin to sort of develop coherence as they get added up. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Rosecrans. Listeners, we are going to take a short break for a word from our sponsor, and then I will be right back with Rosecrans Baldwin. 
The Bookin' Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin' can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin', B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Rosecrans Baldwin, author of Everything Now, Lessons from the city, state of Los Angeles, which is published by our friends at FSG. Rosecrans, for our listeners, can you tell us what is MITT? Oh, gosh. Okay. MITT is an acronym uh, that stands for Mastery and Transformational Training. So Los Angeles is often associated with woo-woo, with new age, with uh, self-help. You know, Tony Robbins is from Los Angeles. Um, we have a great history of groups that would persuade people um, to change their thinking, to give up some money while changing their thinking. You know, we have people here who listen to extraterrestrial messages from Mars and clairvoyants who have talk radio programs on Sunday mornings that I really like to listen to uh, as they condemn yoga as witchcraft. In any case, uh, there's a lot of that in LA. And MITT is an organization that runs a self-help program here um, that someone told me about early on in working on this book. And I decided to go check out what it was for myself. Um, What it is, is a reworking of a popular self-help program in the 70s and 80s called LifeSpring. Uh, LifeSpring had, a, at the time, a huge following around the United States. Uh, it promised a sort of radical transformation of yourself if you have gone through trauma in your life, if you are having problems at work or in your family or just trying to understand yourself better, you would sign up for their class or their program, you'd pay X amount of money, you'd go to a ballroom in a hotel near nearby, and you, along with several dozen other people, maybe 150 other people, would undergo several days of what I would characterize as sort of psychological boot camp. The idea almost as if to sort of tear down who you were when you showed up and build you up into supposedly a better version of yourself based on what they might think is a better version. Uh, LifeSpring went out of business. Um, There's some terrific reporting done by a Washington Post reporter that found numerous incidents of people having, uh, let's say, traumatic events while they were part of the program, uh, and there were numerous lawsuits. In any case, LifeSpring got rebooted by a hairdresser uh, from Beverly Hills who started it up again in a basement uh, in Culver City or in, excuse me, near the airport, Los Angeles International Airport, and began doing these quote unquote trainings again. Uh, And it just has 
become pretty popular among a certain set of people. And so I dove in and did it for about a week <laughs> and uh, yeah, and had my, and my uh, mind certainly got bent, I think is the best way to put it. Right. Thank you. And before you sort of submerged yourself in this MITT training, had you had any other interactions with any other cults? Is MITT a cult? You know, it's, I, I put the same question to the woman who runs it during my interview with her after my experience. Uh, and she laughed and said, you know, so she said along the lines of, do you see anybody sitting around at my feet, you know, worshiping me? She also made the point, as I discussed in the book, that, you know, she believes everyone is sort of, you know, basically in a cult by virtue of being born into society and being told what to wear and what to eat and what not to eat. Um, I find that argument a little bit thin. In any case, uh, before MITT, New Age wasn't really in my uh, line of understanding. It wasn't something I knew much about. I've never had a crystal that I, you know, keep a special place for in the room. No judgment on those who do, however. Uh, and in fact, I, as part of the reporting and research for the book, I definitely wanted to sort of experience some parts of the new age that have always been, or have been for a while, a part of Los Angeles culture, and frankly, are having a bit of a comeback. Um, for example, I did a plant communication workshop in a neighborhood called Topanga. This is where I met with these two women. There was a group of us, and the idea is they were going to train us to be able to sit down in front of a bush. And then with the bush, the shrubbery in front of you, you would communicate to the shrub your thoughts and feelings uh, telepathically, and then you would listen very closely to hear the shrubbery talk back to you. Um, afterwards, we all gathered in a circle. I had spent about 30 minutes with a plant called a monkey flower. Um, it's a quite attractive plant, these little yellow flowers. Unfortunately, I did not hear anything from the plant in our conversation, uh, but I was pretty much the only one in the group who did not communicate with their plants. In fact, one woman got quite angry because the plant wouldn't uh, talk back to her after a while, and she felt like sort of hurt and shut out by that plant. And the coaches had to work with her on understanding that she might be projecting here. And it wasn't necessarily that the plant didn't love her. Um, but I also did a thing with a woman who took me uh, hiking while conducting talk therapy. It was sort of like Freud in the mountains. Uh, I met with uh, a group of young women who do um, yoga in Venice with this acolyte type guru who sort of is on her smartphone the entire time while you're doing the yoga, but you're trying to break the digital connection that you have, but she shows herself to be a victim of it in order to you understand that she's not better than you or I. Uh, anyway, LA is full of weirdness and it's not hard to find, but MITT was definitely, uh, it was something that took it to another level. And in, in some cases, it would appear to be something that has harmed people along the way based on those I spoke to that I found out uh, about afterwards. Right on. Thank you so much, Rosecrans. Um, Los Angeles aside, California as a whole uh, is, I believe, the fifth largest economy in the world, maybe the sixth. Um, do you think secession from the United States, as is threatened every now and then, especially from 2016 to 2020, uh, is ever a real possibility? I don't think it's a viable possibility. I don't see secession happening anytime soon. There is already enough division within the state of California. You know, you have 
just looking at the politics, you have places like San Francisco and Los Angeles and San Diego, and then you have the Central Valley and also where all the agriculture really is taking place or so much of it. And then you have Northern California. I mean, to start driving north of San Francisco, it takes a long time to get to Oregon. And those parts of California, you know, many of them are um, politically of a different stripe than you might find if you're walking around near Dodger Stadium. Uh, so no, I don't see California seceding anytime soon. I almost could picture Los Angeles seceding from California sooner than that if they could somehow figure out a way to detach themselves from the rest of the rest of the land mass. Mm -hmm. All right. Thank you so much, uh, Rose Krantz. One thing that fascinated me in this book was your writing about Octavia Butler, who you mentioned earlier. You write that she needed to write self-help books to herself, for herself, to believe the narrative she had created for herself, to paraphrase slightly. Uh, can you tell our listeners about what is going on here in regards to Octavia Butler? Oh, absolutely. And that's a great question. You know, she is a fascinating figure. For those who maybe aren't familiar with her or her work, Butler was uh, a African-American woman who grew up in Pasadena, right outside of Los Angeles, um, mid-century. Um, she became a science fiction author, um, the likes of which had really never been seen before. Really the, one of the first women to break through in science fiction, not to mention the first black woman to do so. Um, bestseller after bestseller, eventually becoming the first science fiction author to win a MacArthur quote-unquote genius grant. Um, you know, books like Kindred, uh, they, she has just developed a huge um, audience. Um, and particularly in the years after her death, uh, you know, she died only at this point, you know, less, a little less than 20 years ago. But in any case, Butler early on, um, was really clear in her diaries that she just didn't fit in. The only way I know this, by the way, is that the Huntington Institute, a museum and sort of academic center out here with this remarkable library, you know, they have um, an early, they have a Gutenberg Bible, they have all these early drafts of Thoreau by, uh, excuse me, of Walden by Henry David Thoreau, uh, wonderful works. They also include the Butler archive. And so I got permission to go in there and spend basically like two weeks just digging through these boxes of her diaries and her commonplace books and her memorabilia because she was a very, very dedicated journal keeper. And she just spoke of being misunderstood and out of place. She was quite a tall woman, uh, very intelligent um, and just found company really in books and at the library. Um, didn't seem, I would think, to have many people to talk to about her ambitions. And she had these wild ambitions to become a huge author, to write these big best-selling books. And she wrote out the most transparent, frankly, naked um, lines in her journals about her desires, about her misgivings, about her fears. And I just would read them raptly because, you know, it's to see an artist want to become something so badly and not know how to do it and then to work it out for themselves is pretty remarkable when they are also describing the process on the page. Um, you know, there's a really weird prescient moment in one of her books. So she had a terrific book called The Parable of the Sower um, that I imagine a lot of people have read. Uh, it takes place in Los Angeles. 
and it takes place in a not so distant future um, where several things that we are talking about now just happen to be playing out. There are all these fires that are in part, you know, uh, flaming because of a climate crisis. There is great political stratification. Uh, we have the most privileged people living in these sort of fortified enclaves in Honestly, if you and I were to drive right now to Beverly Hills, it wouldn't feel that different. Mm. Uh, in any case, in this society, there's a young woman who becomes a prophet and she leads a band of people to safety. And it continues into a second book. And this came out, I'm gonna get the, the year wrong right now, but let's say around, I don't know, late 90s, early 2000s. Uh, it's called The Parable of the Talent. In any case, the second book in the Sower series, uh, there is a political figure who is the president of the United States, deeply divisive. And his slogan in her book is basically make America great again. Mm -hmm. And to see that in a piece of science fiction, you know, basically 10 to 15 years in advance was quite startling. Uh, in any case, she is just one of these figures that I didn't really know about before I came here. And now can't think of as other than one of the greatest writers Los Angeles ever produced. Um, so it was really a treat to see her mind, her experience of LA become something that I could connect to. Thank you, Rose Crantz. Yeah, we talked about that um, aspect of your book about Octavia Butler at our morning staff meeting at Quill Ridge Books uh, here. And, and that's an object that is of a particular fascination to our booksellers here. Um, finally, and listeners, we have barely touched upon this amazing book. Uh, but Rosecrans, I wanted to ask you about a line that you wrote. And that line is, to be somebody without a something in Los Angeles meant you were a nobody. Can you unpack this statement and maybe link it, if possible, to the transactional nature of relationships in Los Angeles that you write about earlier in the book? Oh, happily. And I, I, I'm glad you singled out that line because because I found it to be one of the sadder truths that came out of my reporting. Um, so yeah, so for part of everything now, I really tried to reach out to the widest variety of people, uh, whether that was participants in that workshop at MITT, or I would go on Craigslist every month and post an open call to see if anyone wanted to talk about loneliness. And I would just have these very random long email exchanges with strangers from all over LA County talking about what it's like to live here. There was a sense that people suggested to me that relationships here can be transactional. And that's perhaps true of any place else, but in Los Angeles, so much is concerned with about status. You know, you will frequently see people who perhaps are living in their parents' basement but have spent all their money on a Range Rover because that is how they can sort of flaunt themselves a little bit, or perhaps in this material object, be what they want to be, even if it's just you know a very expensive truck. Uh, there's a sense here that people only want to spend time with you when you are worth it to them. That can mean everything from they are willing to drive the 45 minutes from the east side to the west side because that's what you mean to them, or it can be, frankly, a little bit worse than that. The idea being, are you worth my time? Are you something that improves how people perceive me? In other words, again, that idea of power and status. 
And like I said, it might exist other places, but not many places are like Los Angeles that have both the image of Hollywood and the dream of Hollywood attached to it. The idea of immense success, but more than that celebrity of recognition anywhere you go. And we are the factory that can make that happen. But here also we have Skid Row. We have um, these oil derricks pumping up and down. We have places where people, I think, can either see immense success or the idea that you could disappear and no one would notice, that you can just fall through the cracks, there's no social safety net to catch you, and you will just be gone, and Los Angeles never knew you were here. So one of the things that people suggested to me when I was in that MITT group and all these people are breaking down all around me and weeping and screaming and confessing just the most awful things that have been done to them. By virtue of living in Los Angeles, they said it felt a little bit like if you didn't have the big job, if you didn't have the hot husband or the hot wife, if you didn't have the sparkling resume that made everyone else gasp, then what were you doing and why were you here? It just spoke of this intense loneliness, I think, that sometimes can feel, people can feel in a place so addicted to surfaces and the image of things. Now, again, this, that's only true for a certain amount of people. It's like Hollywood. Um, Hollywood is identified with LA, and yet of the 11 million people here, I would say that 10.999, whatever the number is, have no association with Hollywood whatsoever. But I found it to be, unfortunately, something true among a great deal of people. The idea that, you know, to be a somebody who just doesn't have a something, who lacks purpose or a calling or a fancy car, is kind of to be um, invisible. And yeah, that's sad. Well, thank you so much. Rose Cranston, thank you for writing this amazing book. It is a fantastic narrative of place. And listeners, if you enjoyed the earlier episodes of this podcast with Rebecca Solnit, Alex Pugsley, or William Volman in the books they discussed, you will love this one. Or if you enjoyed the other recent LA books we've discussed with Seshu Foster and Arturo Ernesto Romo and Jonathan Ames, you will love this book. I have been speaking with Rose Krantz Baldwin, author of Everything Now, Lessons from the City-State of Los Angeles. Rose Krantz, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Once again, I would like to thank Rose Krantz Baldwin for joining me. Copies of his book, Everything Now, Lessons from the City-State of Los Angeles, can be ordered at www.quailridgebooks.com free shipping for members of Readers Club Plus. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro.fm Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Bookin'.